Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer before we look at the word together. Father, as we just sang, we would ask that you would be our vision as you are ruler of all. Guide us and direct our paths, direct our thinking this morning as we go to your word. Help us to love and respect your word and to realize the importance of our obedience to it as we live. Father, I pray. You would use what we find here in the Word today to strengthen and encourage us as we are your stewards, as your, uh, your ambassadors, as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ who, with those who so desperately need it. Strengthen us, encourage us, embolden us to share the truth and to live the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've seen here in the 19th chapter of Acts that Paul arrived in Ephesus to find a city overflowing with pagan superstition. I would encourage you to go with me to Acts chapter 19 this morning as we continue our study in this 19th chapter of Acts. And as we saw it last time together, as Paul came to Ephesus, he arrived there to find a city that was Wall-to-wall superstitious, wall-to-wall pagan superstitions overflowing with the likes. There were people possessed by demons and there were those who practiced their superstitious black arts. And I think it's very interesting how Paul dealt with the with the things that he found here. He, he dealt with the problem the only way he could. And let this be an encouragement to us as we deal with the society that we live in when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ in a world where things are difficult to confront and hard and and there are people who are resistant to the truth. Remember this, Paul dealt with the problem the only way he could. And in the words of Ray Steadman, Paul attacked that that stronghold with the most powerful weapons ever known. The weapons of truth, of love, of righteous behavior, and of faith expressed in prayer. That's what we ought to be all about. Ray Steadman is right, and it challenges my heart as we gather together to look at the remainder of Acts chapter 19 this morning that Paul did do what he knew was best. He, he dealt with the problems that he faced the only way he could. And again, as as Ray Stedman says, Paul attacked that stronghold with the most powerful weapons ever known, the weapons of truth. He spoke the truth. He preached the truth of God's word with love. He acted out in love, out of love, because he loved those whom he was trying to take the message to because of Jesus Christ, of righteous behavior. He was a righteous man. He was a Christ-honoring man in the way that he lived and spoke, and, and of faith expressed in prayer. He's a prayerful man, and we ought to be prayerful people, righteous people, people who take the truth and love of Jesus Christ to the world that surrounds us. Earlier, verse 10 noted this, that all who dwelt in Asia, and this is amazing to me, and I'd encourage us that we, that, that, uh, we have a lot to do here in this area in which we live, this this area in which we live is, is by no means saturated by the word of God. Earlier, verse 10 noted that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Don't miss that little three-letter word that I started with. All 
all the all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Amazing, isn't it? All the, who, who lived there. It doesn't say that all believed. We noted that last time. It doesn't say that everyone who heard believed. It just says that all who lived there heard the word of the Lord Jesus. That's our task, isn't it? To take the word of the Lord Jesus Christ to the community that we live in, across the street to your neighbors, across the counter when you're doing business with people and the way that you treat them and, and you speak to them, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world that we live in and to do so in a way that is Christ-honoring with the way that we talk and live, the way that we walk with Christ, so that they see what we're saying lived out in the way that we live. Now, after about two years of faithfulness on the part of Paul, those who were growing in the faith and those, uh, those who were being challenged by Paul's faithfulness and a, and a challenge by those who were growing in the faith, Satan's stranglehold on Ephesus was, was destroyed. And the evidence was in the response of those who came and brought their books of magic and sorcery and burned them in a huge fire. We noted it last time. And I think the significance of this is indicated by the value of the books that were burned, 50,000 pieces of silver. It was an equivalent to a day's wage. Each piece of silver was an equivalent to a day's wage. An equivalent today would be that of, uh, if we were to put it in today's numbers, $33.6 million worth of this black, black magic and sorcery, these books that were burned. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change lives. So let me just encourage you this morning when you look at the, the neighbor you have and you say, I don't think that person could ever come to Christ. Be careful. Because we see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change lives illustrated very well in this we see in this 19th chapter of Acts. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change lives. And evidently, Paul felt the work there was going well, and he was ready to move on. Because if you look at verse 21 with me, and I want you to do that, verse 21 this morning, let's begin there. He thought things were going well, and it was ready to, he was ready to move on. Because in verse 21, it says, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, and he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Now, think about this with me for a moment. Paul wasn't only concerned with starting new churches. He was all about that, but he wasn't only about that. He was also concerned with encouraging and teaching and strengthening new believers. He was concerned with bringing them up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He knew, as we need to remember, that beginning the Christian life is not an easy task. It's not a natural task. It doesn't come easily. New believers must be encouraged toward growth in Jesus Christ and dependence upon the Holy Spirit and living in his power. That's one of the reasons we gather. One of the main reasons we gather together as a body of believers, to be encouraged in our walk with Christ. To be encouraged to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It's one thing to be a Christian. It's another thing to be an effective Christian. And to be an effective Christian, you must be a growing Christian. A person who can say, I can look back over my life and see that I'm further along than I was then. I'm further along than I was last year at this time. Do we have setbacks? Do we fail the Lord? Do we sin? Yes. But we ought to be able to look back over the time frame of our lives that we've trusted Christ and say, I'm, I'm becoming more Christ-like. I'm not perfect by any stretch, but I see progress. I'm, I'm further along than I was last year. And that was Paul's heart desire to go back to these places where he had been, where he'd seen people come to Christ, where he'd established a functioning church and go back and encourage them along and help them advance in their Christ-likeness. And so Paul's concern was to return to those places where there were spiritually young believers, not physically young believers necessarily, right? You could be an older believer and yet be young, a young believer, right? And so his heart was to go back to those spiritually young believers to help them along in the faith. We ought not forget that. That is so critical that as a church that we don't just assume everybody's got it. You know, everybody's there. Everybody's arrived and they're, and they're, they're advanced in their, in their knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ and their obedience as far as we think we are. And I just say that because sometimes we think we're further along than we really are, you know. <laughs> right? So we need to be careful that we're not looking at each other going, oh, you're okay, I'm okay. We don't need to learn anymore. Um, we're not a club, right? This is not a, a, social, a social gathering, although there is a lot of social aspect of what we do as a church because we need the encouragement of the body of Christ. But we're just not a, you know, we're not a club, right? We're about becoming more Christ-like in our walk with Jesus Christ so that when we leave these doors today, we go out of this community and we influence people toward Christ. That's what Paul was about. That's what we ought to be about. But note, too, that he wanted to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the very heart of the Roman Empire. He wanted to encourage the believers that were already there, but he also wanted to continue to take the gospel even further, even deeper, into the heart of the Roman Empire. He wanted to take it to the, to the city of Rome, that life-saving, life-changing message of Jesus Christ. He wanted to take to the heart of Rome. That was Paul's plan. Like you and I have plans, right? We don't always have plans that go the way that we plan them. This was Paul's plan to take that message to the heart of Rome. That was his plan, but his plan, plans were quickly changed. There was trouble. And we see the first indicator of it in verse 23. Look at it with me. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. May I encourage you that as you share the gospel of Christ, this is bound to happen. <laughs> You're saying, how's that going to encourage me? Can I just, let me just encourage you that it is not unusual to find opposition. It is not unusual to find a great commotion where the truth is introduced. Just be encouraged that this is bound to happen when you preach the gospel. When you live the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you agree with me that that is something that is very different from the world that you and I live in? When you live the message of Jesus Christ, when you live it out and you obey God's word, you're going to find yourself in opposition to several, several things in, in the world that we live in. Many, many things. And people may look at you like there's something wrong with you. The good part is, is you know the truth, right? There's nothing wrong with you. It's what's right with you, Jesus Christ. 
But it's bound to happen when you preach the gospel. Some will trust in Christ, and we praise God for that, but some, when they hear the truth, will resist Christ. They will resist the way, right? They will resist the only way, Jesus Christ. The way here, as we see in verse 23, that this great commotion rose about the way. The way is a term for Christianity we find only in Acts. But when you begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll find sometimes there's some resistance to the way. The only way, Jesus Christ. And though great advancements of the gospel had been made, there was still opposition. That will always be. That will always be true. That will always be the way it is for us as believers. There will always be opposition to the truth. It doesn't mean we give up and say, well, they oppose me. It might mean that we look for people who will listen, but we don't stop praying for those who reject us, do we? And reject the message of Jesus Christ and reject the truth of the gospel. And though there had been great advancements of the gospel that had been made, there was opposition, and that will always be so. In fact, as John MacArthur says so well, effectiveness and persecution usually go hand in hand, since an effective church is a bold church, and a bold church is often a church made strong through suffering. Just what we wanted to hear, right? He goes on to say, The Lord Jesus Christ called his church to be salt and light in the world. Salt stings when rubbed in the wounds, and light reveals the evil deeds done in darkness. Both can provoke a hostile reaction. It's true, isn't it? This leads me to a question which is really the foundation for the rest of our study here in Acts 19. And here's the question I want you to think about as we proceed through the rest of the text here. Why do people resist the gospel? Why do people resist the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why resist the way? Why resist Jesus Christ and why resist the gospel? I mean, why would anyone resist the way, the truth, and the life, right? Why resist the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you three reasons that we see here in Acts 19 that people resist the gospel. And then we're going to look at the rest of the passage together. Two of which, two of these reasons that people resist the gospel that we see here in Acts 19 we're going to talk about this morning. The third one I want to talk about this evening as we come back. We have time of communion tonight, fellowship around the Lord's table, and we come back to this third Thing, the third reason we see here in Acts 19 that people resist the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the two I'm going to hit on this morning. As we see in Acts 19, people resist the gospel because they are blinded by three things. And they, and they resist the truth because they are in love with and they are blinded by three things. I'm just going to mention the three things right now so you know what they are. And then we're going to talk about them. First of all, people resist the gospel of Jesus Christ because they are in love with money. All right. They resist the gospel of Jesus Christ because they are blinded by their love for money. People also resist the gospel of Jesus Christ because they are in love with stuff. Sorry. This is, you know, that's the way I think about stuff, you know, things. They're in love with stuff. They're blinded by their love of stuff and things and materialism. Thirdly, they're they're in love with their sin. And that blinds them to the truth. Those are the three things that we see in the remainder of chapter 19 together. 
And these things blind people to their need of a Savior, and their love for these things causes them to resist the gospel. First one, people love money. People protect their pocketbooks, don't they? It's like the fellow I heard about who um, was very long in the face, and his friend came and said, what in the world is wrong with you? And he said, I'm a millionaire. I'm a millionaire. The guy said, you're kidding. You're a millionaire? What's wrong with that? He said, well, I used to be a multimillionaire. My wife made me a millionaire. So he was discouraged. You know, he was attached to his money. He loved his money, right? People love money. People protect their pocketbooks. Look at the evidence that we see of it here in Acts 19, verse 24. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Verse 25, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation, a trade union here, I guess, right? And said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Stop right there for a moment. Let me remind you that Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us about the heart and how how it can blind us from the truth when our affections are misplaced. The heart can blind us from the truth when our affections are in the wrong place. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Can you know your heart? Can I know my heart? The old nature is deceptive. The heart is deceptive. And blinds us to things that are true when we are attached to things that are untrue. You know, when you're in love with a lie, you will reject the truth. And you will push away from the truth when you are in love with a lie. And and these businessmen were concerned about their livelihood more than anything else. They loved money. and, And frankly, business was down. Their prosperity depended on idol worship. And the more people who trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, the fewer people there were buying their idols that they made. And let me just caution you that lest you think, well, that's fine, but I haven't bought an idol in a long time. I don't have a real problem with money. For one thing, I don't have any money. So how can I have a problem with it? Just know that you don't have to have lots of money to to love it. Okay, You don't have to have lots of money to love money. And you might have the opposite problem. You might not have money and you love it so much you do anything to get it, but you just can't get it. You just love it so much and you can't get it, right? Jesus spoke much about money and the proper use of it. I read earlier this week that approximately one-sixth of the Gospels, including one out of every three parables, touches on stewardship. So Jesus said a lot about money. Jesus wasn't a fundraiser. He dealt with money matters because Money matters, right? It's important how we deal with and how we use what God entrusts to us and how we think about what we don't have, even. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 makes it very clear that if you're in love with money, you cannot love God. It's not possible. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, the love of money is a false love. A love of 
things. It's a love of possessions, money, and the things that money can buy is a, a false love. When you're in love with those things, it's a false kind of love. A false love doesn't fulfill. Which leads to, the, to another reason people resist the gospel. People love stuff. People love things. And people protect their little gods. Right? Verse 26, look with me. It says, moreover, you see, the silversmith is still speaking, moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. That's right. If you made it, it's not a god. Verse 27, so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, But also, the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. There's the false love for money. There's also the false love for your stuff, your little gods. And you know, it's hard to stir people up over the loss of your income, isn't it? You know, it's hard to get people too concerned about your loss of money. It's, it's their money they're more, more concerned about. So the silversmiths bring another subtly deceptive charge that we'll, we'll see brings the mob to a frenzy. But it's very interesting that they knew they probably couldn't win too many people over with, well, our income is down. Do something for us. So they said, hey, uh, but, but, but what about the temple? You know, that's going to be despised. Our religion is going to be despised. And they thought of some other collateral material to bring in to help get the crowd riled up, which it did. We'll see later. But this charge really had to do with a, a threat to the religion of the city and was really quite silly when you think about it. Really, think about it. If the goddess Diana was so great that the whole world worshipped her, how is it she could not defend herself? Why was he so concerned that you know the, the goddess Diana would be made little of? If she commands the worship of men, how is it she could not care for the city of Ephesus? So it seems kind of silly to accuse the Christians of doing great harm to their religion, but that was the excuse that they used, and that got the crowd riled up. Now we should note, too, that Christians had not gone after this religion to discredit it. And he's a good lesson for us, a good reminder for us about how we deal with the society that we live in. Christians had not gone after this religion to discredit it. Paul did not attack the religion of Ephesus. He had not denounced the temple. He had not attacked their pagan superstitions. I want you to note that later what the city clerk says is going to verify this. If you'll allow me, look at verse 37 for just a moment where it says, the church clerk comes in and tries to settle the crowd down later, and he says, These men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. He comes in and corrects their thinking. He says, wait, they're not blaspheming your goddess. So what was their problem? There was nothing negative about how the Christians spread the gospel. They simply presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of the gospel to change lives. It's the power of the truth to change lives. They simply presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when this new faith was presented and the reality of it was seen, lived out, the old superstitions lost their charm, lost their appeal. And maybe you could share witness to that this morning in your own life when 
before you came to Christ, there were things that you, you loved. And when you became a follower of Christ, you began learning his word and began living within the power of the Holy Spirit, you began to realize that those things were worthless. And you began to lose your affection for them, and they lost their attraction to you. They weren't so, so good-looking to you anymore. And that's exactly what was happening here. I say that to remind you of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, preached out, taught, and lived. Do not make little of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change hearts and minds and lives. But people love stuff, don't they? People love things. And to love God means change. And change scares people. And because you can't say you you love God and money both, people begin to say, well, wait, wait, you mean if if I come to God, I might have to give this stuff up? But I like this stuff, and it scares me to think about having to give it up. And so... I, I can't believe in God. I can't trust Christ. And what makes change so difficult is that we don't like change and we're not willing to be changed and we like our little gods too much. And we don't like giving up control, do we? These people in Ephesus were dealing with that. J.I. Packer illustrates our problem with idols this way. And I think we need to be mindful of this in our own lives because this is not an issue that's limited to those without Christ. We we have this problem ourselves, don't we? We have these same problems we must deal with and overcome. J.I. Packer illustrates our problem with idols this way. What other gods could we have besides the Lord? Plenty, he says. For Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals, those jolly nature gods whose worship was a, a rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual prostitution. For us, there are still the great gods, sex, shekels, and stomach an unholy trinity constituting one God, self. And the other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position, whose worship is described as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, 1 John 2.16. And he gets a little too close to home for me here when he starts to talk about football. Football, the firm, and family are also gods for some. Indeed, the list of other gods is endless, for anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god, and the claimants for his prerogative are legion. In the matter of life's basic loyalty, temptation is a many-headed monster. You see, we're not immune to the love of stuff. We're not immune to the love of money, are we? We're not immune to the love of things and and position and power or or anything else that holds our attention over godly priorities. We're not immune to that because we're human, aren't we? And we must deal with these issues as well, just as these people in Ephesus had to deal with them. And the reason people resist the gospel is because to be saved, we must be willing to be changed by God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, at the root of your obedience to him is your willingness to be changed by God into a Christ-like image. And I would challenge you this morning that if you're not willing to to be changed by God, you have to examine your own heart and ask yourself, am I truly a follower of Christ? 
Because until you realize that to trust Christ as Lord and Savior means I have to allow him to do a work in me that makes me Christ-like and Christ-honoring in the way that I talk and live and the way that I walk. You know, it's interesting to me that we often think that we have to change ourselves. And we think, oh, I just can't do it. You know, this is just the way that I am. You know, I kind of think this is the way God made me. You know, not true. If God wants you to change, you can change. But the, the, the interesting thing is that it's not up to us. He doesn't ask us to change. He asks us to be willing to let him change us. And if you struggle with sin issues in your life that you're trying to get rid of, maybe you need to depend upon the Holy Spirit more and ask God to make the change start happening in you and through the study of your word and your dependence upon him in prayer, that he begins to move in your life and help you change. You see, God is not asking you to change yourself. Only he can change you. Only God can change me. He only asks that you and I be willing to change. People love their money and people love their little gods and often their money is their god. Sometimes often they're one and the same, aren't they? And you know, even as we approach the midterm elections on Tuesday, some of us can't help but think about the believer's role and the church's role in social change. And we're all about change. We'd like to change the world we live in, and we want to change the society we live in, and we're concerned about social change. And, and there's good reason to be concerned about social change in the world we live in. As we approach these uh, midterm elections on Tuesday, as we begin to think about the believer's role and the church's role in social change, I think there's an important lesson for us here about how to, how to cleanse the sinful society that we live in. There's an important lesson for us that we find about how to cleanse the world that we live in, the this, this sinful society that we live in the midst of. Paul didn't start a petition against the silversmith shops. He didn't call for a people to boycott them, and he didn't write letters to Rome to complain about the idolatry. He didn't call people to write letters to Rome to complain about the immorality in Ephesus. He didn't do those things. Those really weren't even options. What he did do was really far more effective, and what we must remember, if we want to affect change in the world that we live in, take a lesson from Paul. What he did was far more effective. He taught the word of God daily. He taught the word of God daily, and he urged the new believers to live for Christ. That's what we're all about as a church. We want to teach and preach God's word, and we want to urge you to live for Jesus Christ. Because then, things will change. Because it begins with the church, doesn't it? It begins with God's people being changed by God. And one by one, the customers of the marketplace of sin were taken away. We see it happening. That's why, as we're going to see later in the text, as we look at it tonight, we'll see as the group came together, as the mob came together, it truly turned into a mob, and even people didn't even realize why they were there, became angry. And yet the only way to change the society that we live in is through the teaching and preaching of the word to believers and to admonishing and encouraging and strengthening believers to live for Christ. So as we leave this place, as we go into the world that we live in, we point people to 
Christ with the change that's evident in us. And we see it happening in Ephesus. And those customers of the marketplace began to dwindle away because they began trusting in Christ. These people came out of the woodwork and became angry. You know, a lot of people complain about the moral decay in our society, and there is good reason for concern. But what ought to cause more concern is the moral decay of the church. And what saddens my heart is the moral decay of the church more than anything else. It's easy for us to look at the world and go, shame on you, isn't it? But how hard it is for us to look at ourselves and go, shame on me. What ought to cause more concern for us is the church in decline because we are rejecting the truths of God's word. Can you imagine what would happen if everyone who called themselves Christian in this country truly lived like Christians and took holiness and Christ-likeness seriously? Could you imagine? Our responsibility as God's people isn't to get the unsaved to behave themselves, is it? Our responsibility as God's people is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them so that they will be saved and God will change them. It is our responsibility to be sure that the church is pure and that God's people are growing in Christ's likeness. And as we grow in Christ's likeness, we will take the word to the world. And that is our job. We're going to see tonight that the third thing that blinds people to the truth, the third thing that they love which blinds them to the truth, the third reason people resist the gospel is because of their love for sin. People don't want to let go of their sin. And as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can expect some to come to Christ and we can find great joy in those who come to Christ. We ought to expect it and look forward to it and work for that to see people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But do not be discouraged when you find that there are those who resist the gospel. And they do so for good reason. They are blind to the truth, and they are dead in their sin. And until Jesus Christ shakes them at their foundation and begins drawing them to himself, they will remain blind to the truth and dead in their sin. Only the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unbeliever will lift the veil of darkness from the eyes of the one blinded by the love for money and the love for stuff and the love for their sin. We need to pray that God will get a hold of their hearts and we need to live lives of faithfulness and obedience in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and leave the results in God's hands. And for the believer this morning who struggles with the love for money and stuff and sin, let me just remind you that the Holy Spirit... The word of God and prayer are there to bring us into a closer fellowship with Jesus Christ and to draw us away from the things of the world that dishonor the name of Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with a love for money, if you're struggling with a love for things and stuff, if you're struggling with some sins in your life that you can't let go, you need to depend on the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit work within you to help you to release those things and let him have those things and to take them from you. And if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, and if you identify with this, that you had been blinded from the truth 
and you're beginning to see the truth today, and you, don't, you realize you don't know Christ, I would urge you to trust in Christ today. Come to him today. Do not wait any longer. I would love to share with you after our service this morning how you can know Christ. Please come to me. Please do not delay in trusting Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we've gathered here this morning to worship, to learn from your word, to be encouraged and challenged, Lord, I pray that you would continue to do those things in our hearts as we leave this place this morning. As we go about our business this week, we would remember the importance of being encouraged and strengthened in the knowledge of your work in the heart of sinners, to draw them to yourself and knowing that we are to remain faithful. And though we may face resistance to those who deny the truths of God's word and resist the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to remain faithful and continue to live for you and to continue to advance the cause of Christ in the Higgins Lake area and beyond. And Lord, I just pray this morning that you would give us wisdom for that task. And then help us to be yielded to you in the work that you want to do in our hearts and through our lives in pointing people to Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.